This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Right now, we have a special guest here today. It's our first baseball guy that we've been able to bring in, Wayne Randazzo. He is the pre- and post-game show host for the New York Mets, also fills in as their play-by-play announcer. And Wayne, thanks for coming on, and how are you doing today? I'm great, Logan. How are you? Uh, Any better, and I'd be working for the Mets. But I guess what I like to ask everybody right away, just to start off the podcast, is what was your break into the industry they vary a ton from broadcaster to broadcaster, and a lot of them are unlikely and unreplicable. What was yours? Well, I feel like mine maybe uh, was a little bit more, uh, a little bit more boring than that. I think that uh, you know, I, I knew I wanted to do this uh, from a very young age, so I uh, pursued it right away uh, into college, really in the, my last year of high school, even, but. Uh, especially once I got to college, I uh, interned uh, with the Arizona Diamondbacks my freshman year and then uh, transferred to a school back home in the Chicago area that uh, helped me get an internship at WGN Radio. And it was really there at WGN that I got to uh, start to meet some people in the business, learn a lot about the business, and kind of took off from there. I got my first job only about a month after that internship ended while I was still in college and uh, just uh, kind of worked my way through from there. How were you able to get those internships, especially the Diamondbacks one, all the way in Arizona going to school in Chicago? Well, I was going to school in Arizona uh, oh, my first okay. year. I, I transferred uh, transferred back after my freshman year, but uh had a connection somehow to uh, Jerry Colangelo. My uh, cousin, George, uh, ran the National Italian-American Sports Hall of Fame, still does, in Chicago. And uh, he got to know Jerry Colangelo pretty well. So they uh, kind of worked together to get me an internship with the D-backs. That was, that was really more of a writing internship at that time, although I did uh, follow around Tom Brenneman quite a bit that summer uh, as he was still the TV voice down there in Arizona. So... That was a good experience, and then uh, the the internship at WGN came about just uh, just kind of because it was, I already had the D-backs on my resume. Uh, I was doing college radio, and I was pretty persistent uh, to to get a guy uh, yeah, at WGN, Mike Farron, who actually is now the D-backs pre pregame and postgame show host. Um, he, uh, you know, I just pestered him with emails until he gave me an internship. It worked. <laughs> persistence pays off going to a small college you went to graduated from north central college in naperville i believe that's a chicago suburb you see a lot of the people at the level that you're at have syracuse degrees or northwestern degrees or at least you know university of wisconsin or south florida coming from a small division three school was that ever a disadvantage as far as climbing the ladder to where you are uh honestly the only the only thing you really see that is a trend is the Syracuse uh, group. They they have you know there's so many of them. Uh, they're all very talented and they all you know stick together. It seems to get opportunities. So uh, the other schools, I, I never you never really see them 
crop up. And actually, that's why I went to Arizona State was because they had the Walter Cronkite School down there. Uh, that was that was why I chose to go there first. But the school I went to provided me with just a, a ton of opportunities to be on the air. I mean, there was no waiting period like there would have been at Syracuse or, or some other big school. So I was on the air right away as soon as I got there and, and started calling games. And you know, my senior year, I was the sports director. So uh, just you know, basically scheduled myself to do as many games as possible, and it was uh, it was a great experience. It was uh, it was it was nice to do all those games. So uh, it never really cropped up. I, I, I uh, you know I got a lot of experience in the Chicago area uh, due to my being in that area. Um, you know, after that, it opened up some doors in minor league baseball. So I don't think uh, coming from a small school was a hindrance in any way. I think it was more of, a, of a, a help to me because I was able to do as much as I did. So after your internship, what was your first professional job? And just kind of take us through, um, you don't have to go through all the boring details, but take us through your career progression. Well, I was uh, an anchor in Chicago uh, for this little company called the Illinois Radio Network. I did their morning sports. Like I said, I was still in school for the large majority of the time I worked there. So I'd go there and anchor the morning sports and then fly back to Naperville for classes. Um, so that that was there a couple of years. And then once I was done with school, uh, I got a play-by-play job in Mobile, Alabama. I was doing double-A baseball in the Southern League right out of school pretty much for the for the Mobile Bay Bears and uh, another great opportunity. Uh, spent four seasons there. Usually would come home to Chicago in the off season and then uh, and then try to get some freelance work there. I ended up uh, doing some updates at WGN at the ESPN 1000 and then eventually landed at 670 to score and that kind of put me on the map in Chicago where I was doing hosting and uh, filling in on some White Sox pregame and uh, a lot of great opportunities there that that kind of allowed me to branch out. Began doing TV uh, play-by-play for the Big Ten Network and ESPN started giving me a bunch of games. So just kind of all started to snowball and and then landed me here in New York. So going from Chicago to New York, those are obviously two of the biggest markets in the nation. What was the biggest difference? moving from Chicago to New York, both culturally and with the media and just the way everything works there? Um, but the only thing that I would say is that the the media, there's just such a higher volume. You know, Chicago is a big city, uh, number three market, but it doesn't have the volume of newspapers, of columnists, of, of writers, just of different people that are trying to get a piece of the pie with regard to the teams or, or whatever the case may be, it, it, it just it operates on a bit of a smaller level than New York does. I mean, when we're on the road with the Mets, it is not uncommon for the visited, visiting manager's office to be just completely full. I mean, there's no way to even get another body in there a lot of the time because there are just so many people covering the Mets and, and around the team every day that it, it can be – uh, not overwhelming, but just a lot. Just just a lot more. Just a higher volume. So in, in Chicago, you don't get quite as much cities as as the cities are. And I find them to be pretty similar in a lot of ways. I think there are parts of of New York where I feel like I'm in Chicago. I mean, there's there's really a lot of the same type of culture, a lot of the same type of people, 
Um, you know, Chicago's a little, I guess, a little bit more Midwestern hospitable, but you know, I don't, I don't find New Yorkers to be unhospitable. So I, I think it's, it's been a good fit for me because I, I feel like the two cities are so similar. I feel like Chicago and New York people fight about one thing on a consistent basis, and you probably already know what it is. Which has the better pizza? Well, you know, it's uh, Chicago deep dish pizza is is really in a category unto of itself. And New York pizza, you know, with the thin slices and you got to fold them. I mean, they're just so different. The deep dish pizza is not for everybody. Let's let's preface it with that because a lot of people don't like it. Uh, a lot of people don't get it. It's not pizza, really. It isn't. It's more of uh, it's it's a, it's based on pizza, but it's not really pizza. It's its own thing. And I think that you know, I I grew up with it. I love it. It works for me. It doesn't work for everybody. Now, I I also think that thin crust, square cut Chicago pizza is the best pizza in the world better than deep dish, and better than New York thin slices. What's the best spot you found in each town? Uh, New York, there's a really nice place uh, not too far from me called Rosa's, and uh, it's fantastic. They've got an eggplant, uh, Parmesan pizza that I like a lot, and uh, it's, it's terrific. It's the, best, it's the best New York slice I've found so far, and I've, I've probably been to at least a handful of places. And uh, Chicago... For deep dish, there's a place called the Art of Pizza, and uh, they even have slices you can just buy instead of getting a whole a whole pie there. And it's I think that's the best one, or one of the best ones in Chicago at least. That the chains are pretty good too, Giordano's and Lou Malnati's. But uh, if you can find the Art of Pizza if you're ever in Chicago, that's that's where I'd recommend. All right, now that we can get a little bit back on track here. Um... The minor league stops that you made. One of the things I've always found interesting was the minor league grind. You're probably not flying as much as you like, taking a lot of bus rides. It's the unglamorous part of getting to, I guess, the glamorous place where you could say you are now. Give us a couple stories from your minor league days that would just make us laugh, make us cringe, or just be interesting. I think I think the minor league baseball schedule, you know, in some ways is um, harder than the major league schedule. But I also think, in some ways, it's a little easier because you do have less games and and you know, 140 games um, in roughly 150 ga- 50 days is, is quite a bit. But 162 games in a, roughly 180 days is quite a bit too. Um, the, the travel in the Southern League, I was also in the Midwest League for a while, too. Um, but the travel in the Southern League was really, you know, that was more of, of the grind where you're, where you're on the buses for just hours and hours. I was fortunate to never be on a bus that really broke down. I think we did have one slight problem with the electric in the bus once, somewhere probably in Florida or Tennessee, and uh, it got fixed pretty quickly, so we never had a situation where we were stuck on the highway for hours and hours on end in the time that I was in Mobile. Um, you know, just it was just it was nice to be able to uh, kind of share those experiences with some of the guys. You know, I still see Adam Eaton or, or Paul Goldschmidt or some of those guys that were on the team in Mobile, and uh, you know, you kind of have that bond that you never uh, you never let go of. So. It was fun. It was a fun time to uh, 
to be in the minor leagues, a good age for it. You know, I know some guys who are uh, much older than me that are still in the Southern League, and uh, you know, I feel for them because I think that it's 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 tough. It can be a very tough thing to be on that bus uh, for hours and hours and hours overnight, and in in different towns all the time. And uh, you know, the hotels weren't bad. I think a lot of it's changed. You know, I don't think teams really stay in too many grimy hotels anymore. There were a couple in the Southern League uh, when I got into that league, but you know, one of them was in Huntsville, and they don't even have a team anymore. Uh, the stadiums have are starting to be improved. Uh, there's a lot of new ballparks around in, in minor league baseball, so I, I think a lot of it's just changed from those old stories that we may have heard coming up in the minor leagues or. or, or thinking about going into baseball and you, you know you watch bull durham I, I just think a lot of that has changed since uh, in the last 10 or 15 years because uh, i think the amenities are are getting better uh still not quite the same a lot of these guys when they get drafted you know they come out of college and you know they're used to especially if they're a division one school i mean they got everything i mean they, they have they can they can rival some major league teams with with amount of equipment and the way that they're taken care of so it's a little bit of a culture shock when they get into minor league ball but uh, i also think it's not nearly the way it was in, in even the 80s or 90s so how has it changed moving from the minors to the majors on how you can interact with players and managers um yeah it's a little bit more uh, formatted i would say uh, especially with the manager, you know, in, in some some cases, especially the Mets, the manager's office at home is not in an area where media is allowed. So it's it, you have to kind of just get Terry when when you, the time is allotted. And he, you know, on the road, he does give us extra time, which is great. Um, you know, and he's he's a great guy to be around and to learn from and to talk baseball with. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of pressure being a manager in, in New York City. Uh, I think there's a lot of media detail that he has to work out, and uh, that can be that can be a grind in and of itself for a for a manager. So I, I, I we appreciate the time that we get from Terry Collins because he does make extra time for us. And the players, you know, they're they're you, you do get to open clubhouse time, and uh, in, in the afternoon before a game where you can talk to them or. Even grabbing them coming out of BP or before they go stretch, so so there are moments where you where you do where you are able to talk with them and and pick their brain a little bit. Um, the one nice thing for the most part, they're all much more polished and and they they get the media thing at that point and they you know what to say. Uh, or the minor leagues, you know, some guys, you know, I think the the prospects, the guys who know that they're going to be uh, asked for interviews, for the most part, get it and understand and are easy to get to. Uh, some guys have a bit of a chip on their shoulder still in the minor leagues as they try to prove themselves. And they're all young. You know, in the minor leagues, everybody's young and, and figuring things out, figuring out life, trying to deal with the money they make, which isn't much in the minor leagues. So it's a, it's a different it's a different lifestyle. The managers and coaches in minor leagues, though, are, are just such a uh, foundation for what you want to, to know about the team and, and anything. I mean, they become friends. They become guys you, you, you travel with and talk to over the course of a long season. And uh, not to say that the major league coaches and managers are standoffish in any way. It's just, it's just formatted a little differently. You touched on something that I want to kind of take a different angle on. You talked about the New York media and how they're really harsh on, the, on managers and players and very critical. How have they treated you as far as other media being critical of your job and how have you handled that? 
Well, I mean, there are a few. Uh, I'm kind of small potatoes when it comes to that stuff. There are a few columnists who are media reporters in New York who, uh, you know, are kind of focused on the big players, the TV broadcasts, the, you know, Mike Francesa or, or whatever. So, you know, I don't, I don't get a lot of attention with regard to that, and that's perfectly fine with me. But uh, as far as the, the Mets reporters, the people on the beat, I mean, we, we get along uh, tremendously. I think there's, there's competition within the writers sometimes. But I think for the most part, everyone on the beat and, and even when the columnists come in, get along great. I mean, we've made some great friendships with some people on the beat. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, they've been very welcoming to me from the, from the get-go since I, since I got hired for the job last February. I think everybody kind of reached out with open arms and, uh, and welcomed me aboard. And it's, it's been great. I couldn't, I couldn't say a, a bad word about any of them. They've, uh, they've all treated me very nicely. So what was your break to get in with the Mets? Take us through how you were able to land that big fish. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I think it was just, uh, as I was saying before, you know, being in Chicago, being a big, big market, uh, having experience doing a lot of baseball, having experience being on a major league pregame and postgame already with the White Sox, um, you know, having done some TV Play by play, and 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 having a you know starting to kind of grow in that in that aspect on a national level, uh, all that stuff just kind of just kind of swarmed into a, a pile that uh, I think that the people in New York really appreciated. They kind of saw this uh, broadcaster who was who was multifaceted, who was was somebody who worked hard and 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 knows the game and and wanted to be around baseball and and uh, you know even though I wasn't from New York and I. I think I was one of the very few finalists, maybe the only one that wasn't from New York. Um, you know, I think that it all kind of just came together and uh, sold them on the fact that I was ready to do this, that I was certainly more than ready to become uh, become a part of the Mets organization, uh, a team that was on the rise, and, and, and it certainly turned out in that aspect with them going to the World Series in my very first year. So. It was uh, just a kind of a combination of a lot of things that made me the right fit. And uh, as they were looking for somebody to kind of stabilize their broadcast, but the year before, they um, their pregame and postgame show hosts didn't have really any play-by-play experience, so they were they were going through uh, a gamut of different people, and they they didn't really have just one fill-in. They had about six over the course of a season, and that you know that kind of kind of be sporadic. So. I think they were looking for someone to just kind of come in and, and fill in on the play-by-play when need be, and and be kind of just a, a stable presence on the on the air, no matter who was there. Uh, at least we'd have the same, you know, two or three people every night, and uh, that's that's how it went down. So going to the major leagues, there's a ton of competition for that job. There had to be hundreds, maybe thousands of applications, and. A lot of them are very, very talented, and even with a resume like yours, was there ever any doubt, you know, hey, this is going to happen? And was there a moment you realized, hey, I got a real shot at this? Um, yeah, the, you know, that's a, that's a good question because I think that, you know, when you apply for a job like this one, you just kind of go for it because it's open and you think you'd be a good fit, and you just kind of wait and see how the, the ball rolls. I mean, it's really out of your hands once you once you hit send on that application. So. It's um, it, it it started to just be something like uh, you know I'd really like that job and then after a couple conversations um, with the with the 
program director of WOR, Tom Cuddy. Uh, spoke to Howie Rose at one point in the process. And you, know, you start to, you kind of have an idea that you're being seriously considered. Um, I always thought this would go to a local person. I just figured in, in such an enormous market, there had to be somebody that, that they were going to give it to that, that was a Mets fan or at least grew up in the area and, and knew uh, a lot more about the history of the organization than I did at that time. I uh, certainly know a lot about it now, but uh, at that time I, I didn't really have a great grasp on the history of the Mets like I do now. So it, uh, you just, had, I just, you know, you just kind of hope for the best, but then they wanted to bring me up to New York for an interview face to face. And I, I think at that point, that's when I realized uh, if that, if that went well, I would probably get the job, and, and it seemed to go well, and I got the job. So what was going through your head the first time you had to fill in for the New York Mets play-by-play? Uh, well, I got to do it in spring training a little bit, but the first big league regular season game was in Atlanta. It was actually the first weekend of the season because Howie Rose uh, was doing the Islanders, and you know he was missing a lot of games in in April for the end of the Islanders season and, and the first round of their postseason. So I got to do about ten games last April, and uh, you know that first one is is one I'll always remember being at Turner Field uh, and and getting to call a Major League Baseball game for real for the first time. I'd done some demos. I'd gone to Wrigley or to Miller Park and and uh, just done some demo tapes, uh, you know, audition tapes at and big league booths, which I. Strongly recommend to any minor league broadcaster who wants to find a way to get some major league tape. That's certainly one way to do it. But um, it was it was very special. I got to do the game with Josh Lewin, who again he and Howie have been terrific mentors to me. As as has Gary Cohen, the Mets TV announcer. And um, you know it's it was a, it was a special moment to call a major league game. Um, you know you don't. You don't feel like it's too different, though. Once the game starts, you know what you're doing. I've done a, I've done hundreds of games before, and it, it just kind of uh, it started to flow, especially over the course of the season. I, I do think that calling major league games was a little different in the sense that uh, you know I, I felt like there was there was a lot more that needed to go into the broadcast, a lot more storytelling, a lot more notes that I than I had used in 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 minor league games, where I would let the broadcast breathe a little bit more. But um, it was it was terrific, and I feel like uh, you know over the course of last season and even into this year, I've grown tremendously as a play-by-play announcer. Um, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm ten times better than I was before I got this job. So uh, I think it's 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 helped a lot. You were talking about finding more stories and having more notes. What is your preparation process to get those stories? Well, starts in spring training. I mean, you talk to guys and you get a, you just kind of have conversations, and you, you know, you do see. You, I'd interview somebody every day, a player or, or whoever uh, from one team or another. You know, you read a lot, uh, you take a lot of notes, and and it all kind of just comes together. You know, you don't want to be too numbers heavy. You don't want to jam statistics down people's throats. So you just want to you want to have some anecdotes. Um, you know, you want to have some moments in the game where you can uh, kind of break away and you want to follow the lead of your partner too. I mean, sometimes uh, your partner brings something up and you start to have a conversation about that. I did the game the other night and and referenced uh, a a well-done article by Tom Verducci about run scoring and home runs and it ends up turning out to be a nice conversation. 
that that lasts over the course of a half inning. So it, it just you know it's just I think playing off a partner is one of the main differences between major leagues and minor leagues. Because a lot of guys in the minor leagues don't really have partners to play off of, especially experienced partners like I do with the Mets. I mean, when I do a game, it's either with Howie Rose or with Josh Lewin, who's two guys who've been around a very very long time as far as doing play by play. So you know, in the minor leagues. You're, you're, you're generally, if you do have a partner, it's, it's probably uh, the number two broadcaster there. So it's probably a guy who's, who's inexperienced, who's only been doing it a year or two, who's learning himself. And it's just to, to go from that, you know, a guy who's learning the business, to go to talk to a guy who's, who's got it down pat. I mean, it just, it just makes a world of difference for your, your call and your rhythm. So you do the pre- and post-game show and the fill-in work, and I want to get to both of those before we're done here. But I want to start off with how is your schedule decided as far as how many games you are going to do? Is it just when Howie's gone with the Islanders? Is it when somebody gets sick? How do they figure out which games you do? Where do your opportunities come from? Yeah, kind of uh, all, all of the above there. I mean, uh, when when Howie... It does the Islanders, although he won't he won't do it starting next year. But uh, I'm sure he'll still take some vacation time during the season. But um, yeah, whenever he's doing the Islanders or Josh is off with the Chargers, and this year he's added UCLA football to his schedule, so he'll be gone, uh, you know, in August and September doing those games. So I'll I'll jump in there. Certainly, there could be, you know, whenever somebody's sick or has some kind of family situation pop up or graduation or whatever. Um, you know, I'll I'll pop in there too. So, just uh, just kind of be ready. Sometimes, you know, there've been already a few instances where I found out I was doing a game the, the day before or even the day of. So that uh, you know, you don't you don't feel quite as prepared then. But I'm around the teams every day, and and you know, so it's not exactly like I'm unprepared either. If if some if I got a call right now that said I had to do the broadcast tonight, well. You know the Mets are playing the Cubs, so I think uh, in both team situations uh, I'd be in I'd be in good shape. I wouldn't have to really be too stressed about the fact that I'm not exactly ready to do this game tonight. So you brought up the Cubs. You're a Chicago native. Did a little bit of reading on you before that. I believe you're a Cubs fan. Does it ever get weird rooting for a team that you grew up basically? I don't know if they were bitter rivals, but certainly a team that you rooted against when they were playing Chicago. No, I think that that kind of goes away. I mean, I you know, I felt like in a lot of ways any kind of fandom I had was up for free agency. I knew that I wanted to be a Major League Baseball announcer. I knew that those opportunities might not come right away with the Cubs or the White Sox. I was fortunate that the White Sox did let me do some pregame and postgame, which was terrific, uh, but that I would have to leave the market to kind of get where I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, whoever, whoever the team was that was going to give me that first opportunity was, uh, was, was going to get all of my loyalty as well. So I'm happy that it's the New York Mets. It's a first-class organization. You know, they, the, the Mets won the pennant at Wrigley Field last year. Certainly a place I spent a lot of time uh, my entire life going to, to Cubs and the White Sox games. So it, it's, uh, it's something that was a little bizarre just to be in that place when the Mets won the National League championship. But, you know, I think that I think when you're in this, uh, those, those teams you rooted for, um, you know, it's just, it, that's just a different part of your life. You were, you were a kid or you were uh, just, 
you didn't have as as much eggs in a certain basket as you do now. So, uh, unfortunately, I think you lose some of that team fandom, or or maybe all of it. But I also think you gain more appreciation for the game, more appreciation for individual players and their accomplishments, and and just you know, I, I love the sport now more than I ever have. So, what is the difference between? baseball and other sports I mean I've done it a little bit I know the answer in a way but I want to hear it from someone at a higher level you've done football on the Big Ten Network and on ESPNU I'm sure you've done basketball sometime through your career what is the biggest difference that makes baseball special well I think from a from a just from broadcasting standpoint uh, you know your baseball and the radio were married at a very young age. I mean, when, when the sports first started to be broadcasted on radio, um, you know, it was always baseball. It was Red Barber, and it was Mel Allen, and it was Vince Scully, and it was Harry Carey and Jack Buck. I mean, these guys became legends in broadcasting broadcasting Major League Baseball. So uh, I think that baseball and the radio have always had this special connection, and from the time I was extremely young, I was always uh, in love with the game and, and its nuances and its strategies and, um, you know, everything about it. I, I just, you know, I, I love that there's, um, it, it's in the summer, it's in the spring, I think it's, you know, and I, I love the fact that each ballpark is unique to itself. Uh, I mean, pretty much all of them have their own uh, you know, nooks and crannies, their own little things about them that make them special and different from the next ballpark. Or if you go to a basketball arena and you close your eyes, how do you know you're at uh, at Penn State's basketball arena or, or at the Kohl Center in Madison? I mean, it's not to say that those fans aren't passionate. They are. It, those are the, some great fan bases in the Big Ten. There's, I've, I've done a couple NFL games now on the radio. It's special to do those games. It's it's special to broadcast at the highest level, no matter what sport you're doing. But for me, I think baseball is just a more romantic thing, and, and it's something that will always be dear to my heart. I think a lot of broadcasters, even even guys who've made their money in other sports, still feel that way. I think Al Michaels still feels that way, even though he's become this voice synonymous with Sunday night and Monday night football that he's really, at the end of the day, I think he's a baseball guy at heart. You talked a ton about loving the radio and loving the way it's done and how it's attached at the hip with baseball. If there was an opportunity, let's just say hypothetically, both the radio and the TV position for the New York Mets came open simultaneously and you were offered whichever one you wanted, which one would you prefer, radio or TV, and why? Well, first of all, there'd be tremendous sadness among Mets fans because Howie Rose and Gary Cohen are two of the most beloved broadcasters for their individual teams. Just hypothetically. We're not saying we want anything bad. Uh, But, you know, I I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, You know, Gary moved from the radio to TV. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind. I think with TV... Uh, in baseball, you get you just get a, a larger chunk of the audience. You're talking to more Mets fans. You're talking to more Royals fans if you're in Kansas City and you're Ryan Lefevre doing a lot of the TV games now, or or whoever. I, I think that you 
become a face and you kind of become a, a, an institutionalized voice with your team. Uh, Howie used to do a lot of TV for the Mets, and now he does radio, and, and Gary was the opposite, where he started in radio and now does TV. So they both have kind of established him, themselves in that way on both ends. So it would be exciting to do some TV. I would, I mean, honestly, I think the, the real true answer is to find a way if you can, to kind of do what, what the Pittsburgh Pirates do or a few other teams do where you're doing both. I mean, the, you know, the, the Pirates broadcast pretty much split between TV and radio. So I, I think that's in a perfect world. I'd love to do both where I'm doing TV for some games and radio for others or even, even like the Cubs used to do when I was a kid. Harry would do the first three innings on TV. He'd go do radio for the middle three innings, and then he'd be back on TV for the last three innings. I mean, that's that's as good of a situation as you could ask for. You know, that's one of the things about the baseball uh, ladder that I've always found weird is that a lot of times in the minors and at certain places, they'll have, you know, a number one broadcaster do six innings and the number two guy do three. That's always seemed like a weird dynamic to me that just makes things harder for the audience. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's good. I think it's a good thing that that you have uh, some different voices during the game. I think that it keeps it can keep an audience captivated uh, for a longer period of time. I I think when you have a guy doing all nine innings, it can it can you know it can grow to be a little stale. You you don't have that you have that same voice talking to you every night for three hours every night, and uh, you know I, I think it kind of freshens things up to have a different voice kind of chime in every now and then. I think it freshens things up for the guy who was, who's doing the majority of the innings to take a little break. And uh, for the person that, that comes in, it can provide uh, a different set of eyes uh, for that for that particular broadcast. So I, I don't mind it at all. I think it's a good thing. It's almost weird now when teams don't do it. There's so few that have their broadcasters do uh, eight or even nine innings. It, it's just kind of few and far between. What is the weirdest location you've ever had to broadcast from, whether that be in football or baseball and minor leagues? I'm assuming the majors aren't going to have a lot of really inconvenient locations. But what are some of the weird spots you've been set up? Um, yeah, you know, the, uh, the other thing that just doesn't happen too much anymore. I've been on a couple of roofs doing uh, some college football games. I think at Arizona State, um, when I first started doing baseball, there was uh, – there was uh, a roof. We had a, the the ESPN radio affiliate or whoever in Phoenix did um, did the games for Arizona State baseball. So we had to go up on the roof of uh, the of the stadium there and do the games up there. Um, so that was uh, that was always pretty interesting. But didn't have too many experiences like that. Um, yeah, cause, I mean a couple college football games or high school football games where you're outside and it's raining and it's kind of miserable but um you know those have really been few and far between for me i remember doing a hockey game really the only hockey game i ever did um where i was up on top of like a, of like these like this closet or something we had to climb a ladder to get up there and so we can have uh it was in such a small rink there was no not really any bleachers or anything so we had to kind of climb up to get a vantage point but um that's about it you know i've kind of uh been able to steer clear of some of that stuff what makes a great pregame show? As a play-by-play guy, I've covered a small college for uh, five years and done the pregame show, the postgame show, the game, everything. 
when you have time to really focus in on a pregame and a postgame show, what do you do that makes your work exceptional and makes your show great? Well, I think with the the pregame show, it's a, it's a little more difficult because it's so structured. I think with the interviews, you really try to uh, get the best interviews you can. We do Terry Collins every day, so it's important to ask him some fresh questions and really really ask questions that are thoughtful and, and that you that you put a lot of time into and, and research and, and give him something to think about as well. Um, I think too with with uh, the, whatever player you know you end up interviewing, whether you try to to get a name i like we had bryce harper on the pregame show the other day which you know bryce doesn't do a ton of interviews or you know we had bob huker on a few weeks ago telling some old stories i mean it just kind of varies from from who you get and uh, and and who you're able to talk to i mean i think everybody has an interesting story to tell at times so it's just uh just kind of getting different voices in and when when the opportunity does arise for me to to drop in some stats, I think it's important to to find the right ones that drive the point home of that particular game. Or uh, I think certainly when whenever you're doing something that can be written, I think you should you should write it. I, I think that well, if you're trying to go off the cuff, it wouldn't come out quite as crisply as if you at least write down some thoughts and and some you know try to to spin around some words that can uh, it can kind of grip the the listener's ear. I think in the post game show it's a little bit more free. There's not as many sponsored elements. There's there's more time and you just you know you talk about the game. I, I think you you have to earn the the listener's credibility when it comes to your knowledge of of the particular team or that particular event or that particular league. Uh, and I think I've established that, uh, you know, I do have a lot of knowledge. I think our post-game show, especially when if you listen to us do the scoreboard show, it's not your typical, here's the scores, Houston beat the Angels, the Rangers won, they beat the Yankees, whatever. We go into great detail about those games, about those teams, about about everybody, so that the listener is informed about not just what's going on with the Mets or the National League East, but all around Major League Baseball. I think you'll learn a lot about the league uh, when when you listen to our postgame show. Who are your favorite broadcasters, if you have a day off, to listen to? And who, give us kind of some big national names, and then a couple maybe under-the-radar up-and-coming people that you like to listen to that other people might not have heard about. Well, I'm extremely biased, but uh, Joe Davis and Adam Amin and I have all grown up together in this industry We've been friends for years now. Uh, we were all doing minor league baseball when we started and became friends, and we're all doing bigger and better things now. Joe, of course, just got uh, hired to be the Dodgers TV broadcaster for road games this year. Adam's doing great work at ESPN. Um, if, if you're thinking about two younger guys who are going to be Michaels or Jim Nance or Joe Buck one day, it's going to be those guys. Uh, without question, to me, they're they're fantastic at what they do. They're smart. They put in the work. They're extremely knowledgeable, and uh, you know the, the sky's the limit for both of them. As far as guys who are more established, you know, I'm always I've always been a big fan of Pat Hughes with the Cubs. I think he's done just such a tremendous job uh, broadcasting Cubs games now for about 20 years. John Miller, of course, with San Francisco. Eric Nadell in Texas. Um, there's so many great broadcasters. You know, I'm lucky enough to, to get to hear Howie Rose every day. I mean, that guy's a, a wordsmith. He's a Mets historian. 
He's uh, extremely passionate, knows when to get up for a, a highlight, you know, knows how to punch a point. Uh, I think Gary Cohen, the way he wiggles through Keith Hernandez and, and Ron Darling every night is, is incredible mastery of, of what he does. And uh, there's a lot of great broadcasters. I mean, I, I think Joe Buck, for, for a national guy, is uh, as good as is fundamentally uh, the best play-by-play announcer on television that there is. I mean, especially on baseball, he's just so fundamentally good that it's uh, you know it's it's, a, it's special to hear him. I, I know he's a, he can be a controversial figure. People don't like him for whatever reason, but from a fundamental standpoint, he's as good as they get. What is the most difficult time of adversity or obstacle that you've had to overcome in your career? Well, I think it's 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 making decisions for what you're what's the next thing. Um, you know, no, you know, nobody really understands that you're going to be good. Even if you're like, if you read if you read about a minor league broadcaster, and there's somebody in that town that did an article about them, nine times out of ten they're going to say how great that minor league announcer is and that he's he's got major league talent, and he probably does. He probably does have major league talent. He probably is good enough to be a major league broadcaster. You could, you could listen to minor league baseball games on a nightly basis. You could probably listen to, to 50 different guys, and they all sound like they could go to the next level. But only a few of them will. And I, I think thinking about those decisions on how to get there is the toughest thing. You know, what will, it, will an, another year in this town do me well, or should I look for something else? Will this job opportunity that I just got help me get to the next level? If it's not quite what I want to do, you know, but it's in a market that I like. You know, I, I felt like I had a job offer in Chicago my first year after my first season in Mobile. So I did one year of baseball and got a job offer in, at home, but it was not doing the type of work I wanted to do. It was, it was doing anchoring and, and producing and that sort of stuff. And... Had they offered that to me a couple of years later, I probably would have taken it because I would have probably had more of a – I would have been a lot happier with my baseball tape at the time. But I thought after one season, my tape would not have been sustainable to help me get the job that I ultimately wanted. So I always kept my eyes on the prize in that sense and, and turned down a job in my home city to stay in Mobile, Alabama, because I, I felt like I needed more time as a baseball announcer. So it, it was all, it was about making those decisions, and that was an extremely tough decision when it came up, and not one I took lightly. And, and I felt like those decisions, you know, kind of come up all the time, you know, about, about games. Or, you know, a lot of times in the offseason, you know, I'll get a couple, two or three different networks will, will offer me a game on the same day. So, you know, what do you do? Now, now you're turning down a network that you, you would never dream of turning down because you're already booked. So, you know, I think it's just, it's just tough. Those decisions are really tough, and I think that's the hardest part. What do you do to improve and become a better broadcaster? Uh, you listen. You listen. You listen to yourself. You listen to other guys. You listen to uh, your tapes. You listen to critiques. You, 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 you listen. I think that's the, the biggest thing. I think that you... Um, need to observe and you need to listen. And I think that those are two things that are difficult uh, to really set yourself apart and, and listen to yourself, uh, to really be hard on yourself as a critic, to allow other people 
to give you true opinions, and I think that's something when I when I get asked to critique younger broadcasters now, you know, I don't I don't I don't want to just say, hey, you sound good, keep it up, or uh, you did this one thing I would change, but otherwise you're fine. I don't think that helps anybody. I think it I think it helps mostly to to go through what I what I like to do is go through the whole inning. And I take notes as I go about what I like, about what I don't like, about what could be improved. And, and hopefully that broadcaster on the other end of that that receives that message, you know, takes it and runs with it. I certainly did. I, whenever I would send stuff to big league announcers or to people that were ahead of me, um, more, you know, in advanced stages in their career than I was, I loved it when they sent me a critique back that was, that had, was just full of criticisms or full of notes. I, I think that was, that was one thing that really helped me a lot. Jeff Joniak, who does the Bears games, was was instrumental in in sending me notes about about my play by play tapes. Uh, Andy Mazur, uh, Corey Provis. I can sit here all day and tell you guys who who helped me with a bit of advice or listening to a tape or whatever. And I think I think being able to put myself out there in that way to get those critiques uh, was was huge. So doing some reading up, preparing for this podcast, I read someone published a story that you were at the Steve Bartman Cubs game when you were very young. I want to say in high school or just out. When you were at that game, did you sense that something memorable had happened in that moment, or did it just seem like, oh, it was just a foul ball that went in, whatever? Yeah, I think at that time... Um, I was sitting. I wasn't sitting near it. I was on the other side. I was, I was down the right field line, and I think the first reaction when you see the play from that angle was, uh, "Oh, it looks like Alou might have been able to catch it." He, he certainly seems a little peeved, um, and and you just kind of go on and you know it's, it was a foul ball, so you just go and and treat it like any other foul ball. I would think so. I do remember one guy after. Luis Castillo got on base saying, boy, I hope the Cubs get out of this inning or that guy's going to really get a lot of crap. And, uh, you know, no truer words were ever spoken in, in foreshadowing than that. Um, but it really wasn't until the base hit started to pile up, the, uh, then the Alex Gonzalez error, which um, I don't even know if it tied the game. I think the Cubs were still ahead at that point, even after he made that error. But that was the that was the play where you knew that this thing was going the other way and that uh, it was going to be it was going to be one for the history books. Would you have reached for that foul ball? Huh, I don't know, not now. <laughs> I think I think uh, I think I think fans need to be a little bit more aware these days that you you have to stay out of the way and if if you know you just kind of figure out where you are on the field and if you're going to be interfering with a play. You know, you don't want to do that, especially if it's your home team. I think you, you just kind of need to be a little bit more aware of your surroundings. So, I don't know. I mean, what I've reached for it then, you see a, a ball coming to you, um, especially in that situation. I mean, don't really – Wrigley's kind of weird where a player uh, can make a leap into the crowd in that way. It's not like a, a regular railing where you have – you know, where it's obvious a player can reach over and catch the ball. I mean, that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a big jump. And you just you're you're kind of so high up off the ground, you don't really feel like you're you're in play over there. So I can we're in, especially in that particular spot in the ballpark where something like that could have happened. 
All right, Wayne, I want to thank you again for joining us here on the Say the Damn Score podcast. We're talking with Wayne Randazzo. He is the pre- and post-game show host for the New York Mets, also their fill-in broadcaster. And, Wayne, I really appreciate your time, and thanks for coming on. All right, Logan, thank you very much. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Be sure to subscribe via email on saythedamnscore.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, follow it on Facebook, or follow Radio underscore Logan on Twitter to get all the updates and on future podcasts and content. I apologize. I let Wayne off the hook before I was able to ask him what the best way for people to get in touch with him and give him feedback on the podcast or just ask questions or advice on their own. So I will give out his Twitter. That's Wayne Randazzo, W-A-Y-N-E-R-A-N-D-A-Z-Z-O. You can tweet at him, and I encourage you to do so just so people know that saythedamnscore.com, this podcast means something to people. So give him a tweet, and thanks for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, remember to say the damn score.